Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Carl Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are talking through an article called Digital Socialism, uh, written by Evgeny Morozov. And when was this released? This is pretty recent, right? Uh, this is the March-June episode, or sorry, <laughs> the March-June issue. Yes, the March-June issue. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll do this again. <laughs> this is the March-June issue of New Left Review, mm-hmm. so uh, from 2019. Very, very recent. Right. Um, no, it's good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this is a hell of an essay. <laughs> like, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Um, it rhymes a lot with a lot of material we've covered. Um, there's some new stuff to to talk about as well. Um, I liked this quite a bit. Uh, Kyle, what's your take? Yeah, fantastic essay. Um, it's an essay by Evgeny Morozov. Um, many listeners will probably be familiar with him. Uh, we have not featured him on the show before because I've always kind of taken him to be a bit of a naysayer and a curmudgeon about Silicon Valley, which can be useful. Like he's very erudite. He's very, uh, his criticisms are usually coming from an intelligent place. Uh, but it's just usually been kind of a pure negation. Like, Kind of reminds me of like that that character in Animal Farm. What is it like the donkey mm, who's just right, the cynic? Sure. Yeah, yeah. That was that was kind of the read I had of his work um, up until we actually read this this article, uh, Digital Socialism: The Calculation Debate in the Age of Big Data, which is really hot stuff. Um, I think it 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 really brings together. Uh, a lot of things that we've touched on on the show. Um, so we definitely, there's some stuff in here that is reminiscent of People's Republic of Walmart. There's a little bit of stuff in here that's reminiscent of platform capitalism. And there's definitely a lot of stuff that is reminiscent of uh, markets in the name of socialism. Um, yeah, so it's it's really uh, great uh, as a synthetic article, bring things together. Uh, but another thing that is um, really strong about this article is the way it closes, uh, which is to come up with a very sort of uh, well-constructed, informed-by-theory um, series of thoughts and proposals about what digital socialism might look like today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I was kind of um, I was amazed to learn that this this guy apparently isn't a Marxist because it, it reads like a fucking Marxist, definitely. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Like he he, he clearly has socialist leadings. Uh, <laughs> it's not digital socialism question mark. Like, is it a good idea? It's like digital socialism. How could we do it? Right. Um, and his reading of Marx in in this text is, is pretty good. But, you know, that's not surprising considering how familiar he is with Austrian economics, because uh, generally speaking, Austrian economists have a pretty solid understanding of Marx compared to neoclassical economists, um, because, you know, they know their enemy, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Something we yeah. could get better at, I think, as socialists as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyway. yeah. 
Um, but anyway, the the article kicks off with this this introduction um, that like you know in these days capitalism is kind of searching for this legitimation narrative. Um, it's usually looking towards Silicon Valley as this kind of glimmer of hope to to give it some um, little bit of a boost in legitimacy. Um, and one of the sort of main narratives that's hovering around in the air at the moment is this kind of uh, the the term is New Deal on data. Um, this, I guess it's this sort of thing about like giving some veneer of fairness and like ownership over data and such, and like, um, and plus the, the the usual gloss of ooh shiny cool digital innovation stuff um, to make like citizens citizens own their data and they become you know these hustling data entrepreneurs flogging their fucking Instagram likes or something for forty two pence a piece, um, and the show can keep on going. Well, hey, we can keep doing capitalism. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing we're we're all sort of familiar with. Um, I, I hadn't heard this particular term, New Deal on Data, in a while, but I think a lot of this stuff has settled into the kind of popular consciousness amongst amongst um, some of the commentaries, at least. Yeah, the the things that came to mind for me were like um, Jerome Lanier's book, uh, "Who Owns the Future," uh, it's a bit of an older book, but it came out around the same time as uh, the Big Data book, um, and. Uh, then also uh, just that point in time where Facebook made your profile information, your profile data visible to you, right? That, that was kind of like, oh yeah, that's sort of like open, opening the vaults and letting the info out there to the people, um, that kind of proposal. Yeah. So the, this thing is, it's, it's um, the, the the person cited here is uh, Victor Mayer Schoenberger, um, who has two books, Big Data um, and Reinventing Capitalism in the Age of Big Data, uh, which is kind of a follow-on. And a lot of this essay will be concerned with just, just critiquing this, the, this set of books, really, um, and this set of ideas. One of the kind of linchpins of this is that, you know, Marx's capital is out of date. Big data will not only reinvent capitalism, but will end it. It will transcend capitalism. And that data will rep- will replace the price system as the main organizing principle of the economy. It's a, it's a heady set of claims, right? Um, and... Oh boy, does it, does it ever turn out to be wrong? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very naive uh, in the way you would kind of expect from this sort of book. Um, but Morozov takes it in interesting directions, and that's what we're really concerned with here. Yeah, totally. Um, it's a lot of this hinges around the the social socialist calculation debate um, and questions of like capitalist planning and so on. So there's a lot of resonance here with uh, what we read in People's Republic of Walmart. Um, some of the same debates are there. Some of the same kind of reframings. Um, we'll get into some of it, but um, you know, there's a there's a huge amount there's a huge amount to say about the socialist calculation debate. Um, if you're just joining us now, it may it might be worth popping back a few episodes and get and getting through that that one first because um, we will be. Yeah, I, I would agree because um, the authors of People's Republic of Walmart uh, give a much better intro and summary of that debate than what we get here in this essay uh, because this this is very much like. If you're already familiar with the subject, it makes sense. Um, but having that primer from People's Republic of Walmart, I think, would be invaluable in understanding this essay. Yeah, definitely. Because one of the, I mean, it's a, it's a central um, part of that book, right? People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, it's a central part of this essay and the books that 
the essay is talking about. Uh, the notion that of like kind of data rich systems versus price systems and so on, and like the relation between data and price. It's often, you know, it's often suggested that like, oh, well, the, the age of big data obviates the need for price and so on. But like um, our, our author here is going to dig way down into this, right? Like, um, and the, the way he sort of sums it up in the end of the intro is that the, this text is going to uh, revisit and kind of revitalize the, the calculation debate itself, um, particularly kind of getting into the nitty gritty of the relations between knowledge, price and social coordination, how big data affects all of that and um the later half of the ep of the the essay will be about this kind of feedback infrastructure um, that 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 emerges and uh, and kind of summing up with opportunities for the left um, for how to engage with this stuff um, because I think um, as we'll probably get to later some of our a lot of the kind of contemporary leftist ways of thinking about this stuff are kind of pathological and not helpful and wrong <laughs> so um this will be uh this will be a great essay to um to get us up to speed there so this first section there's, there's three main main sections um the first of which is reinventing capitalism dash really question mark um in which it's kind of it's definitely addressing this central claim right of like oh big data is going to reinvent capitalism it's going to be super cool and awesome it's going to transcend capitalism whatever um turns out that's a load of horseshit but like um uh, morozov will explain why <laughs> there's a part in here where morozov is like oh well no doubt something there's going to be some capitalist innovation that follows big data in which uh we're like so, if we were to discard the idea of capitalism, say we're well, we're just in the in the age of data. Um, like you know, whatever new technology comes around, we're gonna have to be like, oh well, now we're post data, and then we're uh, we're post data data. Like it's just you know because because nothing has actually fundamentally changed the the um, the analytical value of rejecting the label of capitalism in this context is really low, right? It's just, it's just not, not going to have any staying power at all. No. Um, I mean, it, it kind of turns out the periodizing history in these terms of like, Oh, there was all the shit that came before. And now there's the new thing, you know, the kind of a strict kind of binary period sort of thing is, is fucking crazy, but getting kind of into the, uh, the nuts and bolts of why that is, um, the authors of, um, reinventing capitalism kind of set up this, uh, price versus data, um, opposition, right? Where price is inefficient. It's crude. It's, it's alienating. Like, I mean, as, um, you know, we, we get the, the, the fetish of the commodity and so on. Um, whereas data is efficient and fine grained and is a much more, um, a uh, much better basis for um, for social coordination, for making decisions and so on. The way that the authors of Reinventing Capitalism frame this is, and obviously they're in favor of data, right, replacing price. Um, it's kind of all in the service of just better consumerism, right? Like um, that, oh, you know, in, instead of price signaling something or whatever, an AI will match up your fucking Facebook profile with uh, some seller bullshit, and that's how you'll get your stuff. Um and that, like, you know, market players will increasingly rely on data rather than price signals, which we saw in People's Republic was, it's, it's, it's true, right? Like, internally, uh, Walmart and, at least internally, right, Walmart and Amazon and so on all use kind of non-price information to, to make decisions, right, and to, 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 to do allocation. Yeah, so what's at question here is not whether this is happening. What is at question is 
whether this means that capitalism is over. And no, it doesn't. Um, so let's find out why. Right, but it, what, what's funny? What's funny even there is that, like, um, like as as we said, like it's it's all in the service of just better consumerism, right? Like it's just matching sellers to buyers. So it's like to to simultaneously claim that like oh this is the end of capitalism and then also it is just a continuation like as in like oh it'll be completely different and everything will be the same like you you'll just fucking instead of like clicking buttons on amazon amazon will just ship stuff to you in an anticipatory way and like you'll still have this consumerist lifestyle you'll still feel like shit in your job you'll still fucking wonder whether it's worth continuing at all all this kind of stuff but it's completely different woo you know it's like what the it's, it's it's conceptually incoherent, right, to suggest those two things, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a complete transformation of the mode of production, and also this is the thing that's going to save the previous mode of production. Like I don't, I don't, I don't fucking know how you get there without I don't know, like lying to yourself or something, or who knows? Well, right? I, I I think that like given the read of Marx that we see uh, that uh, uh, Mayor uh, Schoenberger has, um, like. It's so shallow that I doubt the idea of mode of production even enters into it. Oh <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> Which is the next section? So, uh, so what, what? In what way did they get this mixed up? Uh, so, uh, Mayor Schoenberger, uh, he he argues that Marx uh, thought that money ruled the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he believes that that Marx's critique of capitalism was mainly a critique of a money-driven society. That is, of course, like an incredibly superficial read mm-hmm. of, uh, of Marx. Um, Extremely. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe there's a little something in there about Marx's sort of comments about mercantile capitalism, like way back in the day. But this is, it's just, it like, there's no way that that's where this is coming from. Um, like they, they have to simply not be familiar with the stuff, right? Because like what, what this really reminds me of, um, and I, I, I don't, I haven't read any of the of those authors, but like it reminds me of the kind of like I guess like occupy sort of anarcho liberal um, punditry of like oh money is the problem, like it's just it's it's money in politics, you know, down with the system. Let's 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 fucking do something with the banks, and it's like that mono focus on money rather than mm-hmm. capital. And it's like money is the spe- spectacular presentation. Amongst its many functions, it's a spectacular presentation of capital. And to be to be taken in by the impression, it, it leads you to crazy sort of conclusions, right? Like, um, and yeah, it's, that's, that's what it really reminds me of, is like when you, you get into a conversation with somebody who's like, kind of like almost radicalized, like they're, they're kind of, they're 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 nibbling on the bait a little bit and they're they're almost there but like they're they're still in that kind of as i said kind of anarcho-liberal or or kind of occupy sort of thing of like just oh, it's money it's the banks you know that's 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 what's really wrong um yeah that's that's what that's what it really calls to mind there but there's the, this is there's loads of books making this fucking mistake right like it's it's a completely unsystemic analysis it fucking mixes again mixes up capital and money it doesn't see you know, it, it sort of it puts the blame on finance as opposed to the like the machinery of capitalism, its various feedback loops and the kind of social relations and structures and all that kind of stuff. Defocuses all that completely and just focuses on this very surface kind of analysis. But like everyone's making the fucking mistake. Like there's there's a bunch of books here cited by Marozov. Um like it's it's kind of a genre at this point, you know? Right. Um, right. And in, in this specific case in, in Mayor Schoenberger's uh, book, so the 
German title of the book is uh, Das Digital, as opposed to Das Kapital, right? So it, it, it's like, yeah, like, you know, I've done it. Done it, boys. I've consigned marks to the grave. Dustbin of history. My, my, my popular press business book is going to unthrone uh, capital as a, as a significant text for analyzing society. Um, and yeah, like really the, the, the read of marks that they, they seem to have is, is just, uh, it's like on the level of, uh, Abba's, uh, song money. Um, you know, it's just, just so superficial. You could state it in a brief pop song. Anyway, uh, the, what are the problems with this, uh, sort of conception? Uh, so Marx uh, thought that, you know, accumulation of capital was very important, right? Um, so that does kind of square with this idea that, you know, having more or less money is important. Uh, but he also had uh, really sort of particular views of the way competition works in capitalism um, and how that interfaces with um, technological development, investment decisions, uh, money markets, like all kinds of stuff, right? Allocation, uh, who gets what. Furthermore, Marx was really concerned with the capital-labor-social relation, right? Uh, he was really concerned with like the ways in which being in the in the position of the capitalist gives you very different outcomes from this system than being in the position of the worker, and and sort of like very getting into a kind of systems level understanding of why that relationship is reproduced in the way it it is and what the consequences of it are. Um, and if you just think about the world as like, everybody's an individual, uh, we're all interacting in digital markets, um, and we all just have less money or more money, and that's it, that's society. Like, if that's your point of view, then you're gonna miss so much of what Marx was actually getting at. Yeah, oh, totally. Um... Yeah, and you're just going to be fucking wrong as well, which is the uh, the, the main the main fallout from that. Um, but another thing that um, Morozov really pins down here is that um, you know we're 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 being we're being asked to believe that this era of digital innovation, internet, fucking data stuff is a massive departure from previous forms of capitalism and doesn't even constitute capitalism anyway. Um, in in part because uh, apparently, according to the authors of Reinventing Capitalism, data will displace finance, like it'll displace money as the basis for the economy. But in order for that to kind of be correct, they would have to demonstrate that digital, like, so you take the example of digital capitalism and like f fintech, like financial technology, um, like banks deploy fucking tons of technology and data and all these kind of AI systems. There are plenty of fintech startups. It's all hot computer stuff. You know, you would have to demonstrate that, like, the old, the old-fashioned, you know, accumulation and competition imperatives were not present in that world, um, which isn't the case, right? You would have to actually demonstrate that that is, a, is in fact, a departure, and it isn't, right? That, like, um, there is a very obvious sort of cycle of investment and competition in, in finance as well, like, you get... 
Uh, old banks are weighed down with legacy systems. They're outcompeted by more nimble new entrants, and then they accumulate legacy systems and in- legacy investments in technology, and then they're outcompeted by more nimble newer fucking entrants. And all on and on, the spiral of competition, the ratchet of accumulation. It's all still there. It's all still capitalism. It's not actually different. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. Well, I, 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 I think what we get is. A view of the economy of, of capitalism that is very much at odds with what we discussed in Platform Capitalism, um, because that book has a much more nuanced understanding of the ways in which uh, data is rendered profitable uh, through sort of uh, doing the work of making it meaningful, um, and also the ways in which um, like big data, uh, uh, internet platforms are integrated into existing capitalist structures in different ways, right? Like they had, like uh, Cernicek had that typology of different sorts of platform capitalism. Um, I think that's a lot more useful than saying, oh, data is just displacing everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, like, I mean, a really important point for Cernicek was that... Um, Data is like a raw material in that it's a it's a thing that you have to apply a labor process to. It's not like it's not a finished product. Like it's not kind of intrinsically valuable. I guess I mean in the way that a raw material is valuable, whatever. But like it's not the end of the story, right? Like you you need to have data and sufficient labor and means of production to apply to it. Which is why this kind of like um, new deal on data is such fucking nonsense. Because like. Okay, so each citizen owns their data, but what can they do with it? Nothing. Like, oh, I can get my Facebook profile and save it in a fucking JSON file on my desktop. Great. What do I do with it? Nothing. Like, because you don't have access to fucking AI clusters, you know, the the, the means of transforming data from a raw material into something you can actually draw profit off of, which is what Cernicek was focusing as the, the crucial difference there, that, like, owning the data is not enough. It's, it's like in the same way that, like, if you discovered that there was oil under your house... It's like, yeah, theoretically you own the oil, but like, good luck fucking getting to it. And even if you got it out of the ground, what would you do with it? You don't have a fucking oil refinery. So, yeah, I guess you can keep it in buckets or whatever, you know? <laughs> There's plenty of people here in Alberta who have their little farm plot or whatever, and they they actually do own their own oil, oil Derek. Right? Jesus, really? Uh, yeah, but, okay. you know, there's a whole, there's a whole story there about uh, how those people are brought into a market full of large oligopolistic competitors and like, you know, the same processes apply. Right. And similarly, uh, you know, it, it is possible, it's conceivable that if, if, if this new deal on data happened, that the data would be made available to us publicly, but we've already seen with free and open source software, what happens uh, given this kind of like, what Morozov calls like cartel arrangement of large tech companies and an open commons of information. Like this would not, uh, opening that our information, our personal information or whatever data sets um, these companies own uh, to the public uh, would not fundamentally change the sorts of dynamics that we've seen in free and open source software, which do tend to ultimately favor the large cartels, which is why they keep funding the stuff in the way that they do. Um, so, and you know, even if you do want to make use of that information, 
like, how are you going to make use of it? Well, they, like, you're probably going to try to do a startup, and mm -hmm. then you're just going back <laughs> into the same capitalist process of accumulation, right? Like, that is not... It's like stepping right back onto the roller coaster, right? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's trying to, you know, once again, uh, promote this sort of, uh, uh, quote-unquote, like, ownership society, right? Or, like, a, a petty bourgeois mentality among society in general, um, it's it's way back to like um, the Californian ideology, right? The the sort of free free man on the land, digital frontier shit. Um, yeah, Jesus, it's 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 how funny is it that people are recycling that fucking stuff um, today, right? Like that, it's every 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 cycle, right? Like um, you get the same thesis restated again and again. Like the, the 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 dialectic of history is truly stalled, where it, there's there's no longer antithesis and synthesis. It's just the same thesis over and over again, <laughs> punctuated by uh, bubbles and crashes. Right, like so you get your initial dot com boom and crash, and then the second dot com boom comes along and it's like, wait, it's basically the same one, you know. And then it's like, oh well, we're just going to re repeat the ideology of the original nineties version. Ah, fuck, I don't know. But I mean, you, you go to these tech hub cities. You know, I was I was just in Vancouver, and it's a, it's like a minor a minor minor tech hub city, right? Like it's on the on the the feeding chain. You know, it goes like San Francisco, Seattle, and then Vancouver on the west coast, right? But like the class war is so visible in visiting that city. Like it is it is like a block by block alien invasion just digesting the city uh, like just just extremely bougie people coming in and displacing people block by block um, and you know I have so many friends who are like economic refugees from Vancouver <laughs> now can't afford to live there like I mean this this kind of uh, you know um, homesteading on the digital frontier horseshit it just it's just not going to have the same purchase that it did in the 90s. You know, when you look at these cities that where the tech industry is dominant and it is just dystopian as hell, you know? Yeah, Jesus, yeah. Um, I, I get the same vibe. Like, I'm, I'm in, I go down to London occasionally and it's a, it's basically like fucking Blade Runner. <laughs> like, it's, it's just like I can see, I can just see the sort of, the, I can see the capital flowing through the fucking place and just like the displacement of people and... And all that kind of shit. Um, yeah, it's 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 fucking wretched. But because the imagination goes there, right? Then it's like it's like oh, we're just gonna end up with these like gargantuan fucking hive cities of just like the the capital intelligence will just build itself a fucking fortress and push out everyone else. Yeah, I mean that's honestly <laughs> what it feels like. Like I I was uh, in in Burnaby. Uh, it's a it's a smaller city in the the greater Vancouver area, and uh, there there's a big mall there called Metro Town, and uh, uh, there used to be just this big kind of like open parking lot space between Metro Town and the next mall over, which is like a small, uh, like ethnic Chinese mall. Um, and in between now, they have built just like huge condo developments with like, you know, the, the, the really posh uh, eateries at the base. And like you're walking through like this maze of skyscrapers to get through what used to be just an open space. And, and I just, I felt like I was in downtown Osaka. I was like, it, it was, it really did feel like an alien invasion had just come in. Like it was like, 
out of nowhere, this new city had inserted itself where one used to be. Um, and, you know, you see that kind of stuff, and I guess you get used to it, of course. You get, can get habituated to just about anything, but um, the, dis the disconnect between what is said and what is done uh, here is, is really intense these days. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, so, I mean, the, the closing kind of remark in this section then is that like the, the data versus money dichotomy that's put forward in reinventing capitalism kind of falls apart under this analysis. But then is, uh, Morozov's going to move on to talking about the dichotomy between prices and information in section two, which gets really fucking intense. Like this is hardcore uh, neoclassical economics and various back and forths. So what is going on here? Okay, so Morozov basically says, look, you know, this book, uh, was it um, Reinventing Capitalism in the Age of Big Data, right? Um, it's so incoherent, it's kind of hard to tell where exactly its economics are coming from, <laughs> right. right? Like, it's just kind of a hodgepodge of ideas. But it does touch on this question about the relationship between price and information, which is really formative to economic debates in the sort of mid to late 20th century in economics. Um, and Morozov gives a presentation of those debates. Um, so he, uh, first of all, he gives a sort of a quick description of, of neoclassical economics and he describes its its emphasis on perfect competition and e equilibrium and describes like sort of how um, strange this view of the world is. And like, I think it, it his description doesn't even hit on how strange it is. Yeah, it can get really like, fucked up. <laughs> he, the, 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 the closest thing I can think of, like, you know, because like, I think this is a good reference because Evangelion was recently re released. <laughs> is if you think about what human instrumentality is, at the end of Evangelion, the neoclassical version of competition and markets is about that weird, but just a little <laughs> bit weirder. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking about, okay? That's perfect competition. Um, the uh, <clears throat> understanding of, neo uh, of perfect competition, um, it sort of involves and perfect more or less like a... a uh, yeah, so it originally uh, the the view of perfect competition didn't concern perfect information, but that was brought in as a supplemental sort of thing for it. Um, the original sort of view you get is like when you go through the the conclusions of it logically, you end up with a world where there is no time, there's no space, um, and everybody is the same person. So you can see why I would describe it as being similar to human instrumentality, right? Like mm -hmm. the end of even end of Evangelion where everybody turns into goo and, <laughs> and, 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 and they all merge into a big goo being like that is, that is fundamentally similar to what we're getting at with the neoclassical view of perfect competition. So like I, you know, whenever I, I see those words like perfect competition, I, it's just like the, the hairs on my back, the back of my neck raise up. It's like, you know, 
when I hear perfect competition, I reach for my gun kind of situation, <laughs> right? Like it, it's because the 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 big the dupe that neoclassical economics pulls on everybody is it says, okay, we have this this view of perfect competition, and what it does is it leads to um, uh, maximally uh, good outcomes for everybody. Um, it is is the best of all possible worlds. And um, we recognize, being sophisticated intellectuals, that uh, the world that we live in is not this world. So, they, you know, they've made the, 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 the devastating concession that time and space exist, <laughs> right? Um, and, and then what they do is they say, okay, but let's talk about imperfect competition and how we can render competition more perfect, right? And, and so everything becomes oriented towards this ideal which has no actual basis in reality and also has no conceivable basis in reality outside of Evangelion human instrumentality scenario, right? So this is like, this is, this is the, the, the mind fuck that they pull on you is by saying like, oh yeah, that's really strange that you say that, you know, like, uh, everybody, for example, has perfect information and everybody is a price taker and everybody is, is, is just, um, you know, they're, they're, everybody's a trader, right? Everybody is, is a producer and consumer and trader all in one. Um, there's no real distinction between roles. And you can kind of see how that sort of leads to a view of like smallholder socialism in some people's minds, right? Um, or a kind of market utopia, which which is sort of what neoclassical economics aims towards. Um, so you can understand why it would be popular with socialists, right? Uh, but then you go like, okay, that's maybe a little unrealistic. That's not the kind of world we live in, but uh, let's dial it back and introduce imperfections into the model. Right. But the problem is that the fundamental assumption and the fundamental orientation is towards this bizarro world. Right. Is this like a fucked up Platonism? Um, I, I think it's even more fucked up than Platonism. <laughs> because... <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> like... Oh, <laughs> Because at least in Plato, there's like forms plural, right? It's not just pure unity. Like I, I, I think there, there's something in neoclassical economics that it's closer to sort of um, to to just uh, uh, maybe 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 Neoplatonism, right? Like that kind of synthesis of sort of Christian adjacent ideas with Platonism. Um, yeah, yeah. So. It's it's really weird. Um, so so that yeah. So basically, the problem is that everybody gets stuck in orienting towards this completely unworldly model of the way things could be. And when you compare that to classical economics or Austrian school economics, um, you get into a very strange conversation because 
everybody is talking about markets, right? Everybody's talking about competition. And in, in the classical school, you could maybe include Marx or say Marx is also included in this conversation, right? Marx takes most of his assumptions from the classical school. Everybody's talking about competition. Everybody's talking about markets. But the fundamental background assumptions about how these things work and what they mean are radically different. So you get people talking past of each other and possibly thinking that they agree on things that they do not agree on at all. Mm -hmm. Which is something we saw it towards the end of that book, Markets in the Name of Socialism, right? Where stuff, this, this neoclassical stuff degenerated to the point where people could have a conversation and not, they, they could think that they agreed with each other and be arriving at completely opposite conclusions. And yet the conversation reads as if it's agreement because the, 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 the foundations are so wildly different. Um, worrying stuff, right? That like the foundation of our fucking present world is this vortex of bullshit. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. It really, it really, it really gets me worked up. Cause I'm just like, Oh, like, cause you know, I, I, I went through econ 101, right. And it, it was the, I had that mind fuck pulled on me and then, you know, it, it took me a long time to understand like what was actually going on there. So yeah, it's, it's real, real just frustrating. Um, so anyway, uh, why is this relevant, right? Like why, why is neoclassical economics relevant to this conversation? Well, what Morozov basically says is that neoclassical economics and especially the uh, market socialism um, or uh, sort of planned economy, planned socialism, that was informed by neoclassical economics is like in a very important dialogue with Hayek's views of the market and information uh, informing what we understand as neoliberalism today and the sort of background, uh, the theoretical background of data capitalism, platform capitalism that we see today, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's setting up this opposition, it's setting us up for this opposition between price and information, or pr price versus knowledge systems. Um, right, right, yeah. So the, the, the neoclassicals, they don't start out with this view of information as being important, but when Hayek enters into a conversation with them, they take the information-oriented aspects from Hayek and they integrate them into neoclassical economics. And that's that's Hayek's kind one of his innovations, right? Is that he he came into a conversation where people were concerned with just calculating stuff, and then he pointed out, well, how are you going to discover the information that you you want to calculate? Like, wh how do you find your inputs? Um, he threw that wrench into the, the 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 machine there. That like, what the fuck are you going to calculate if you don't? if you haven't discovered the information in the economy yet. Yeah, it, it, it goes from a kind of uh, computational problem with a series of given variables to more of an epistemological problem, right? Um, how do you get useful information to do the calculation, right? Um, that's the sort of thing that Hayek brings in and additionally, he makes the point that the market is a necessary epistemological tool for finding that information you need. 
is it either generates or it unveils information or both. Yes. Right. Right. And, and, and what the neoclassicals take away from that is, hmm, okay, uh, so everybody interacts with the market and therefore the market gets perfect information and therefore we can get to our utopia. Which is not what Hayek was saying, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, totally. This is a. This is this is. There's a lot of misunderstanding mm. happening here, and 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 so the, the central the central pillar of all this, once once we peel away all the layers, uh, is is this uh, this essay by Hayek in 1945 called "The Use of Knowledge in Society," and this is often misread as, putting it very uh, briefly, that it's often read as Hayek saying that price or the market, yeah, prices in the market, condense the knowledge of society into a single figure and condense and then convey information. But that's a misreading. That's a a very popular misreading. (laughs) Yes, yes. So the basic uh, read you're going to get here is that... um, Hayek thought that people basically uh, take into account uh, their their local circumstances and their uh, broader uh, understanding of the market uh, as is given to them by price signals, and they make decisions on buying and selling. And their knowledge is condensed into that single figure of buy-sell and uh, what the price signal we get back is right. So it's it's the 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 input is buy sell in how much amount right, and then the 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 the, the feedback that they get is oh what's the market doing like is it going up is it going down where is it that kind of stuff and because everybody is contributing into this data set, it is actually um, a miraculously powerful. Uh, source of information for creating a perfectly competitive market, right? That that is that the neoclassical read, the misreading, mm-hmm. right? And the reason that's important for all the the material that's being addressed here is that the I mean, pr- price is obviously a kind of impoverished measure of anything. Like it's a it's a condensed figure that represents all uh, represents some things and obscures a whole bunch of stuff. Um, this leads uh, people to then propose that, oh, well, big data is a replacement for price. It's a richer, um, more high variety, higher fidelity signal of what's actually going on. But the crucial thing here is that's not actually what Hayek was really proposing. In, in, in Hayek's actual view, the, the, low, the, the, the low resolution signal of price is sufficient because the information is processed elsewhere. Because there, there is a whole information system in society which does all this information exchange and condensation and relay and all that kind of stuff. And then price is kind of an output kind of, and an input to the same system. But it's not, it's not that all of society's information is condensed into price. The information is condensed all over the fucking place and then price emerges. It gets awfully fucking complicated, though. And price also it feeds feeds back into that, right? So it's like, you know, first of all, price is necessary for a market society to function, but it is not sufficient, right? It is not a sufficient channel for information to be distributed. Um, 
So that's that's maybe like one important point. Um, so you know the, the neoclassical view that like everybody just sort of feeds into price and then boom, there you go. That's that's not right, right? It's not sufficient. Um, there's a lot of institutions. There's cultural norms. There's trends. There's like uh, popularity. There's aesthetic taste. Um, there's there's uh, know-how practices, um, working norms, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's it's all happening w around this context of price happening, and it, it it conditions what happens with price at the same time that price conditions it. Mm -hmm. So pr price is strangely both central and peripheral to to the whole operation. Like it's it it is in fact a complex feedback loop that it it almost doesn't make sense to try and imagine it in spatial terms because it's got more dimensions than we're familiar with in spatial terms. So, but we, we can, we can only touch it in these various metaphors. Um, what, one of the, one of the ways I was sort of thinking about this is that, um, the, the price and the information system are entangled with each other in such a way that each, each is kind of a cipher for the other, right? That like price is only legible in the context of a, a culture that understands and processes price and processes all the other information um, and has these norms and has these um, expected behaviors in particular. Like if the price goes up, there's an expectation of behavior that comes out of that. So the, the variety of the problem is actually handled in multiple places. Um, similarly, all those other norms lean on price as their, their sort of crutch that, that holds them up. So there's, um, there's, there's something really weird about it. It's like they're, they're kind of mutually... The, the information is actually distributed across both systems in such a way that neither of them actually function without each other. Um, the other the other way that helped me to really understand what was going on here was um, to think of a an example like imagine you're looking at the deck of an aircraft carrier, right? Like you're, you're just you have no idea what this thing actually is, and you're just standing there and you're watching aircraft take off and land, and there's all this busyness and people are loading loading shit into things and cargo and all this kind of stuff and people are scuttling around everywhere and you're like oh geez this is so complex and then you see the guys with the little semaphore flags and they're going you know holding them at crazy angles and they're like guiding aircraft in if you were to just take that impression and run with it you'd end up thinking the flags are doing all the work right that like the signaling of the semaphore flags is what do is, is the magic that makes the entire aircraft carrier work but clearly that's not the case, right? Like the the organization of such a complex operation is partially in the control tower, partially in the uh, norms and the, the training and the sort of procedures that everyone has. And it's partially in the minute-to-minute -minute decision making of crew on the deck and so on. And the, the semaphore is important, right? Like it's it's part of that whole infrastructure, but it's not, it's not the main act. It, it would be crazy right. to think that the system of symbols of semaphore is somehow calculating the information of the aircraft carrier like that would be really straining it and that to me is like a, a decent sort of example of what what's kind of going on here with mixing price up as being the be-all and end-all of of information conveyance in a society right and the the uh metaphor that morozov himself gives is of uh, a snapshot a bird's eye snapshot of a battlefield, of a battle in progress. So having that snapshot, having that sort of assessment of where things are kind of at, um, is going to give you information to act on. But there, there's no reasonable way that you could say that that is like the core determinant of what is going to happen in the battle. Um, and just sort of extending that, I was thinking like, oh, 
you know, if I'm playing a real-time strategy game on computer, uh, like uh, StarCraft, um, it's a very old game, but, uh, you know, it's, it's probably the best one to think of because it's so dynamic. Um, the visual representation of the game uh, is not at all exhaustive of what is happening in the game state, right? There's there's the technical layer, there is the metagame, there's the disposition of forces, there are all of the the rules and values and balance that are, that are part of it. Um, there's the telecommunications, um, there's my background knowledge, there's my physiological state. All of that stuff is meaningful. But if there is no visual representation of StarCraft, you cannot say that StarCraft is being played because it is fundamentally oriented towards that, that visual interfacing. Um, and similarly, you can't say you have a market society without price, right? But <laughs> you also cannot say that price is exhaustive of a market society, right? Like that would be a complete misrecognition of the situation. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it necessary but insufficient. It's um yeah, it's a wonderful phrase. Yeah, that's that's some fucking that's some tricky material, uh, but uh we got through it. Um the next section then kind of tie it, it moves on to the kind of next stage of history, I guess, where um, Hayek's essay had a fucking enormous impact on modern economics. And as I said, isn't that kind of worrying, right? That, that Well, the misunderstanding of his essay had a fucking massive impact on modern economics. Um, let, let's get the attribution right there. Um, because it, it does foreground this inf- the importance of this information discovery. Um, but obviously it's been misread, right? The, the neoclassicals misread Hayek as saying that price can do all the work um, and can operate more effectively than planning. And with this misunderstanding, the planners, right, the social democratic planners, the socialist planners, and so on, they kind of mutate and they take on the task of designing markets to be more efficient. Right. So I think it's 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 useful here to get uh, just a baseline of what Hayek's beef with these people was. Right. Uh, so first of all, um, you know, we've been saying like, oh, people got Hayek all wrong. Uh, do not mistake that for us agreeing with Hayek. Oh, no, he's going to shake So, you know, Hayek had a kind of informational and sort of nuanced understanding of society, but he was fundamentally a, a he was a market fundamentalist, right? He, he thought that this, this information uh, aspect of a market society was representative of a natural social evolution that was just like natural law, right? And that any deviation away from this arrangement uh, would be uh, catastrophic and was just like basically against nature's law. It's like, it's just... Against God, right? Yeah. It's against God, yeah. You know, I don't. I don't think Hayek was a theist directly, but th- this is this is this is it, right? This is <laughs> if this isn't theology, I don't know what fucking is. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so he did have quite an interesting point of view um, that was more sophisticated than the neoclassicals, right? With their bizarre theology, um, uh, but it was still. Um, 
fundamentally informed by this kind of militant bourgeois ideology you had coming out of Austria in uh, the mid uh, 20th century. And the other thing was that uh, Hayek was very critical of this sort of engineering mindset, this constructivist mindset that thought that um, you could you could design a better system than the market, which is, you know, this is this is like fundamentally uh, like the Christian critique of uh, artifice, right, of ingenuity, right, that 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 that. that if you think you can make something better than God, that is blasphemous, right? Um, so those were his two main sort of beefs with the uh, neoclassical socialists. Um, that one, uh, they had a way too simplistic view of a market economy, and uh, two, uh, that their constructivism was only gonna cause, it was only gonna lead to grief, right? Like, you know, Hayek was not the most extreme out of all the Austrians. He did kind of make some concessions in uh, Road to Serfdom to Social Democracy, but fundamentally he had this point of view, right? He, he, he was oriented towards, no, classical liberalism got it right. The free markets of that era were the true way, and we just need to stick to that as closely as possible, and that's gonna lead to the best possible society. Um, which is obviously not the point of view of the, the neoclassical socialists, right? Like they, they did have that engineering mindset that like, we can do it better. We can use ingenuity. We can, we can design a better system. And that's why they were interested in a planned economy. And that's how you end, like you then end up with this weird fusion, right? Of the kind of two positions, like influenced by Hayek, that you kind of end up with, yes, that the market is a self-organizing self-bootstrapping force of nature that shouldn't be interfered with, but that these planners then take it upon themselves to design for it, that it, it, it need, you need to intervene on its behalf. And you get this fusion of economist and engineer um, as a replacement for, and this is like as a replacement for the kind of socialist or social democratic impulse to design, like essentially design society, it, that shifts over to designing markets, Right. Um, so you're using math and game theory instead uh, instead of like using math and game theory to like tease out these informational dimensions of markets rather than like you know the old the old thing of setting input prices and quotas and, and designing social institutions. Um, well, I mean they still do that, right? It's just like it's a kind of destructive design of like obliterating social institutions and re replacing them with markets um, as as a way of handling the complexity of the world, right? That like this is the world is complex, and the new solution to that is to set up a market such that it will solve the problem for you. Supposedly, doesn't fucking work, but anyway. Um. Yeah, they, they have this view that um, there are information imperfections and market imperfections that exist in the world, and engineering can bring those, those uh, information systems and markets, or effectively the same thing, uh, towards perfection, their view of perfection, right? Which is perfect competition, which is bizarro land. But this is this is this is this is their thinking, right? Mm -hmm. That like, okay, they, they have a perfectionist view of of, of of the world, right? Like the the we can get closer to perfection 
um, by using clever engineering techniques. And because of what Hayek said about information and markets, they moved away from uh, seeing broader social, the construction of broader social institutions as the, the best way forward for society and towards engineering markets as the best way forward for society. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next time for part two of our discussion of digital socialism. In the meantime, you can find us on the internet at generalintellectunit.net, on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on all the podcast apps, so like, rate, subscribe. All the usual stuff. Also, be sure to go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, Swampside Chats and From Alpha to Omega. They're really great shows and some really great folks. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next time. Bye-bye.